Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with Dita Blair. Dita is the epitome of grace and style, but her talents and passions extend way beyond her life as a fashion icon, renowned hostess, and wife of the ambassador to Denmark during the Kennedy administration and to the Philippines during the Johnson administration. For over 60 years, Dita has dedicated her life to medical advocacy, specifically to scientific research. She's served in the boards and been deeply involved in both fundraising and advocacy for the Foundation for the National Institute for Health, the Albert and Mary Lasker Foundation, the American Cancer Society, the Harvard AIDS Institute, the Scripps Research Institute, and Dita has also co-founded the Alexandria Summit on Mental Health. Her most recent focus is on her latest research initiative in mental health called the Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain. This work is very personal to Dita, having lost her son, William, to suicide in 2004. Dita's passions and enthusiasms are so varied and extend throughout a life lived to the fullest that it's very hard for me to name all of her accomplishments and engagements, but I look forward to sharing as many of them with you all as possible in this conversation. In this episode, Dita talks about her life's work in medical research, her life's inspirations, and what we can all do to support the life-saving research that's being done in mental health. Dita, it's so wonderful to see you. I am so delighted to be here with you today. Dita and I are old friends and former neighbors, so it's also been so wonderful to be back in the building. All the doormen in the lobby are all the same. It was so wonderful to see everybody. And they said, welcome home, which was so nice to hear. But they're exceptional. Oh, they really are. You know, it's funny having lived in different buildings in New York through my life. There is no, there is no place like here. And there's such wonderful, wonderful people. Um, I think many of my listeners know you as a wonderful hostess and a, a fashion icon and just the epitome of style and, and grace. But I don't know if everyone knows about your real life's passion and work, which is that of, of medical advocate and you specifically with all of your work with scientific research. So I wanted to have my listeners get to know that part of Dita Blair's life today. And I wanted, I want to talk to you about your most recent initiative in mental health. But before we do, you've been working um, as an advocate for over 60 years in this space. So I want to, I want to take you back um, (laughs) to over 60 years ago and ask you sort of how you got started or who, who was the person or what was the connect that got you involved in this type of philanthropic work? Well, actually, looking back, the most inspiring driving force was Eunice Shriver. And she was a next-door neighbor in Chicago We became fast and close friends and with her family and her husband, Sarge. And it really began with Eunice. Uh, We visited scientists together because at that stage, the Kennedy Foundation was funding research in what was then called mental retardation. Oh, because she had a sister who was that was that the impetus for that? Probably, but yeah. Eunice took it on eventually globally. She started with 
the research and go with her. And uh, then when she moved to Washington, when her brother became the president, Sarge became head of the Peace Corps, they lived in the country, and she had day camps for these challenged children. And this led to the Special Olympics. Yes, it's incredible. Uh, you're asking about influences and people who I admired and who stimulated me. Uh, Mary Lasker played, I would say, the most serious role because of her depth of understanding of almost all diseases and suggesting action. She was a total inspiration. She's known for many things, including the flowers on Fifth Avenue. But what was most important to her she drove the political agenda to increase funding for the National Institutes of Health. The first word that comes to my mind is unique, but she was multifaceted. We had a friendship that embraced many things besides science. We traveled twice a year to Europe together and did magical sightseeing in France, in England, in Italy. And she had been trained as an art historian. She went to Radcliffe, then to Oxford. She married an art dealer. I used to buy Picasso drawings on the Rue de Seine for $120. Stop it. And uh, her co collection was legendary. So their foundation, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but was sort of the launch pad for, for the NIH, the National Institute of Health? or was It had been started, but in a very small way. She actually had the precursor to the Filofax, which is now unknown <laughs> anymore. She had I still black, have mine, Dita. I use mine yes. still. But um, she had a book that was about six inches high and about three and a half inches thick. And in the last page, it accordioned out. And she had every year the budget from the National Institutes of wow. Health and how it grew. And this gave her the greatest satisfaction. So what, what year was that? So we're, we're looking at the, is this the, we're talking about the early 60s that this was? Talking about, talking about, uh, no, a little before that. I'd say the end of the 50s. When she married... Albert Lasker, who was sometimes called the father of modern advertising, he said to her, no private foundation is going to change the world. 
you have to go to the heads of government. And this is what happened. And uh, and how did that how did that work? So she's so that's interesting. So so their foundation was kind of a, a launching pad, but but she and Albert said we in order to really make an impact, we have to do this sort of we private have to, public partnership and get the government involved. Yes. And wasn't she sort of the catalyst for the the American Cancer Society? Or she yeah. tell me about that. Or she's the sort of the person who is the forefront of that, and you along with her. Well, Mary and Albert had a long association with the Cancer Society, and they immediately saw room for improvement. And uh, they led it into a more modern age of communication. Its headquarters were in New York, which was very advantageous because... What the Lasker Foundation is also known for are the Lasker Awards. And there's a significant number of Lasker awardees that have been awarded before they won the Nobel Prize. Oh, wow. At times it's been 60 or 65. I don't know what it is at this moment. And I'm sure they've given to people before they won. We, we, we usually shied away if they'd already given it. But we, uh, And so she had something to talk about. Because in making those awards, she learned the science. She knew what they were getting the awards for. The most important thing for any award giving foundation is the jury you have to have a distinguished jury and mary had the greatest scientists in the country because we had addressed many topics we gave a basic award and a clinical award and a kind of public service award so these awards are given annually and at this time uh you are very involved with the Lasker Foundation. I, uh, I, not so much anymore. But when you were giving these awards oh, out of the beginning, when I was yes. giving the awards, weren't you, I vi- attended, you vice president at the time? Or I you was were- vice president. I was very active. Uh, there were lunches and dinners to arrange. There were people that were essential because the reason for the awards was to communicate what was happening in American science or worldwide scientists. I I will correct that. Definitely, they were worldwide. And we were, for many years, we would be on the front page of the New York Times. And people begin to learn from things like that. So you're you're learning about this cutting edge science from hearing from these scientists directly, and then your involvement also was to help raise money and bring resources to this this scientific work. And I know you were very successful at that because you're very persuasive. So tell me about that. So you you would hear from these scientists, and then would you say, 
gosh, we just gave this scientist this award. This person's making a huge impact in cancer research. I know someone who would really want to support your your work. Well, Mary believed in connection, and she mixed guests very, very well. At dinners. At dinners and at lunches. lunches. And uh, she did it in New York and also in Washington. She would come down and stay for a week or so with us, with her secretary, and equipment was moved in. I mean, I do remember years of racing to the drugstore to have things copied because it wasn't common to have a Xerox (laughs) copier in your guest room. She believed in showing simple bar graphs to congressmen and and leaving a message on their desks. So uh, she can be credited with the growth of the National Institutes of Health. So you too, I can see you conspiring. You're getting your dinner, your 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 guest list together for a dinner, and you you're inviting congressmen or senator. You're you're bringing in. You're you're creating that public private partnership, right? You're bringing in. Yeah, we brought in everybody. Yeah, um, we would have people from NIH. We would have guest scientists, probably some of the jury members. Anyone who had a strong new story to tell. I remember once we entered, we entertained in the basement of our house, took the furniture out of Bill's home office and William's playroom, and would have 50, 60 people. And someone walking down the stairs said, My God, you've got the whole appropriations <laughs> committee here. <laughs> so. I love that. I can't. I, later, I want to talk to you about your your book. I I want to know. I I know there were so many wonderful dinners, and I can see the, the menus. And I just want to. I want to. I'm sure there are such wonderful memories of some of those with some of these NIH dinners, too. But tell me. So you're you're focused on cancer research, and now if we're going a little bit further in time, in the 80s, I think I read this, and correct me if I'm wrong that it was cancer researchers who discover there's this new disease, this virus that they can't identify, and that ended up being HIV. Uh, and you were there at that time and were, were there to sort of watch how that unfolded. And, and I want to hear what it was like back then to be someone who was advocating for investment in that research, because uh, that was, I think, back in the time, very, very controversial. And it... It certainly was controversial. I first heard about it at a meeting of the Cancer Treatment Committee at NIH, which was a group of about 30 people, and they made important decisions programmatically for the Institute. It came from all over. And Two or three doctors began saying, we are seeing strange cases of Kaposi sarcoma and also brain involvement 
and they would speculate on what it might be. And it was obviously in an infectious disease very important to find out the source of infection. And it was Bob Gallo, Myron Essex, and Luc Montagnier who were credited with that discovery. The Lasker Award gave the award that year and basically in, in research to those three. Oh, wow. And I had to look for jury members who could address infectious disease, vaccines, how epidemics spread. And I was given several names. And we had Dr. Myron Essex from the Harvard School of Public Health as a juror. And later on, he thought of more things for me to do, which was to go on the visiting committee at my beloved Harvard School of Public Health. It started with the visiting committee, but then I became an advisor to what was then called the Department of Cancer Research. And that was because Dr. Essex had discovered the feline leukemia virus. Oh, wow. However, it quickly changed to the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease. Did that evolve into the Harvard AIDS Institute? Yes. It did. Okay. It did. And uh, you had a cluster of people with such a total commitment. And Max was very intelligent. And I went around to the different labs, and I'd have two or three hours with the lab chief. And it was an education that was unique. And it was the first time I ever did any fundraising. And it was very challenging at first. Luckily, there were many very generous gay men who gave extremely generously. But you'd hit a disappointing situation. I remember when one of the world's great philanthropists, we attended the same dinner, which was a very beautiful small social dinner in New York. She said, Dita, I haven't seen you uh, come and in those days, you had a glass of ice water with a piece of lemon in it and after dinner. And in the course of conversation, she said to me, I know you are doing great things, but I cannot help you. They bring it on themselves. Wow. That was, I could say for a moment or two, it was pretty crushing. But I think at the same time, it was a call to action. action. Oh, good for you, Dita. And how, yeah. So coming out of that, you have this... Was, um, you probably didn't encounter that just 
once, right? I would think that that would have it, been... Well, you just had nose, or I'm yes, sorry, I but, can't Right, but not as... as um, not, not as... Not as descriptive, shall we say. And so, what were your next? What were your next steps then after that? You had that, well, sort of fire, you know, lit under you. And I guess you just kept you kept working. You kept kept it. Yeah, this was this was very full time. I would be invited with meet to meetings all over the world with the Harvard team. I mean, Japan, London, Martinique. There was a side trip where I saw where Josephine was raised in a small cottage covered in white bougainvillea. That's an aside. <laughs> uh, meetings in France. In Bethesda and Baltimore. I mean, it was... So were, were the attitudes as, I guess prejudice would be a word to use, globally as they were or as hesitant uh, globally to support AIDS research as it was in the U.S.? Or were, were other countries more willing to, to support the work? I would say it was similar. It multiplied so rapidly... The first time I ever heard or read the word pandemic was in the Boston Globe. And that says it all. It came swiftly yeah. and spread rapidly. I think that's probably right. When, it, when you realize that it touches everyone. It touches everyone. And, um, uh, a woman Bill knew was the first woman patient. Somehow she had a double mastectomy and was infected in the hospital. Well, it's incredible. I mean, the, I mean, it's incredible the strides that have been yes. made. I mean, it's essentially um, with the drugs that are available now, you can... It's your, your life, Yes, your life is not... You, you know, you can go on to live a, a long and he healthy... Life, life with HIV. It's, it's really incredible. And it's actually a testament to what happens when you do focus resources and attention to a... Well, we were dreaming of vaccines yeah. which have not yet happened. I am sure there are people still working on them. But it spurred the pharmaceutical industry and biotech companies to develop these drugs for HIV. Well, tell me about, so I'm sure you're still working with, you're doing your work with the NIH at this time. You're involved with the Harvard, what's now called the Harvard AIDS Institute. And you also then begin kind of liaising between the private and public sector pharmaceutical companies and who are going to you to say, Dita, where is the cutting edge research? Where should we be investing? What kind of research should we be bringing into to our company or having our scientists look at. Tell me about that because well, that is so interesting and impactful. Well, uh, it came, I will say, as a surprise to me, but I worked for 20 years professionally and it was two full-time jobs. The first one 
to happen was someone I'd known for a long time, Dr. Max Link, who was head of Sandoz in America. And he asked me to do a variety of things as a friend. And then one day he said, will you come to New York and have lunch with me? I have something serious to discuss with you. And he asked me if I would become a consultant for them. I said, what would I do? He said, I promise you it would be interesting. I said, okay. And this began two trips a year to the just beginnings of the biotech world in Silicon Valley, in San Diego, and eventually in Boston, Bethesda. So tell me, you're going to, you're going to, you're touring labs, you're touring startups that are doing... Yes. Wow. And uh, having full presentations from the CEO and their chief scientific officers. And then at the same time, very interesting man, Wally Steinberg, who had worked for years at Johnson & Johnson, decided to start a venture capital company focused entirely on health care. And I ran into him. He said, could we, have, could we have dinner one night? And he told me what he was going to do and he said, I would like you to be part of this. Would you consider consulting for us? And I said, well, what would that involve? I said, I have zero math in my brain. I don't have the kind of business. He said, no, I want the best science. I, the first job would be to form our scientific advisory board. Well, with all of the great friends I'd made at NIH and at Alaska Jewelry meetings, I knew who to call for advice, some of them to ask them to participate. And we formed the first gene therapy company great company called Metamune. Uh, what, what, what year is this, Dita? This is... 90s? Late 80s? No, this is in the, this is in the 80s, yeah. I would say. 80s and 90s. I worked for them for 20 years. And quite a few deals were made. And it was hugely interesting and you saw visible results, sometimes failures, sometimes great successes. So it was fascinating. So we touched a little bit upon you and Mary Lasker having these dinners where you would bring people together. And I think, I think it was, might've been Andrew Solomon who described you as, as sort of di diplomacy achieved through grace of, you know, how you're able to bring up. <laughs> people together to find understanding and solutions this this collaboration um 
you and you mentioned sort of here you're working for this company that's a that's a venture capital right in this space that is that's really where the impact happens right when you're able to bring people that together that together right and i and i think that's been clearly um why so many of these initiatives have you know we talked about HIV and and or you talked about gene therapy um you know you were able to sort of have a a a front row seat to some of those really exciting um results that happen when you when you get put the right people in 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 a room together and it seems like today I was I was telling you before we started that I'd seen and this woman's name escapes me but a reporter who is a long serving reporter at NBC News who's now stepped down to work for this organization. She herself is a breast cancer survivor, and she was really shocked at how, you know, different cancer hospitals and research institutes are not sharing their their research. Um, they just don't have Dita Blair bringing everyone to dinner. I mean, this is what we, <laughs> this is what our country needs. You well, know? Uh, you said, Andrew, Solomon, whom I consider the most extraordinary writer yeah. on the subject of mental illness and other challenges. And um, I'm not sure that it's always done with grace. <laughs> I, ask, I, I ask a massive amount of questions. Andrew was here for lunch last week, and it was... A, very small lunch. We were five people, which is my idea of terrific. <laughs> and at one point in the conversation, he started to say, there are topics one should never discuss at lunch or dinner. And he said, disease, death. And then someone interrupted. And so I didn't hear the other two. But we know, uh, we know politics is one of the other. But politics yeah. is these days especially. <laughs> so, well, uh, well, tell me. We talked about Andrew Solomon and and mental health, and I, you know, your latest initiative or the, the most recent kind of focus for your your work is a, is a, a personal one for you. It's a it's a recent initiative in mental health. Um, the Dita Blair Initiative for Disorders for the Brain. We've talked about, um, you know, how mental health is a is a global crisis, and I know you and I were talking before we started about there's some reading that you've done, some recent recent statistics about it that I'd love for you to to share with those that are listening because it's really it's quite shocking, really. I, I mean, just to to understand where we are today versus where we were. A hundred years ago, and what you know, what do we attribute that to? I'm always reading statistics, and whenever I have to speak, which is very challenging for me, I look to statistics. And in a recent document, I found something fairly brief but astonishing. Depression affects about 300 million people globally and has been identified 
as the leading cause of disability around the world. There have been widespread increases in depression from 2015 to 2019. In 2021, depression was prevalent among nearly 1 in 10 Americans and 1 in 5 adolescents. Accordingly to the most recently available figures, the costs of depression to the United States economy alone exceed $300 billion annually. Wow. And I know I was reading, I I don't know if it was in your book or other readings that I was doing before you and I met this morning, but apparently the outcomes for Americans are much worse than in other Western countries. And I'm wondering what, what you attribute that to. Well, it's not my attribution. This was in a book written recently by Tom Insel, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health. And he raised the question, why are the outcomes worse for people in America? And commented, there are many different answers to that question. And one of them is, Outcomes are worse because of the world outside of health care. Wow. Drugs, guns, poverty, struggling schools, degraded infrastructure, discrimination, and unregulated social media. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great statements of fact. Well, you look at just how much attention and public concern there is in this country, I think, for for the crisis, because all of us, whether personally or through family or friends, have had experienced um, those who are going through a real mental health crisis um, or, or suicide. It's a, it's a, a part of American life that is urgent and tragic and needs to be addressed. And your It has changed American yeah. life. And but your initiative, I want to talk about the work that you're doing to it to address that because to me what's so exciting about it, and you're going to tell us about it, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that the you are looking to reach and fund really the next generation of neuroscientists and researchers you're almost, your initiative is really kind of focused on funding those that may not otherwise be funded. It's almost like a venture capital initiative. Um, at least that's my impression of it, to really start funding these these promising young researchers who may not otherwise have access to that funding. And how exciting is that? I'll add, Leslie, to what you might call startup funding. Yeah. There is a program currently at the National Institute of Mental Health called ORAP, and they identify 20 or 30 
outstanding people who have completed their residency and are going into labs all over the country in major institutes. And this was presented to me because it's an award program that is an honor and there's no funding attached to it. Oh, I see. So these researchers are receiving these awards and they have all of this promise, but they are not, there's not the financial support to further. No, they've been working. I see. They've been working fiercely and intelligently and with a commitment and zeal, but there's no funding going with the award. So through this initiative, I hope to reach the next generation of neuroscientists and researchers in psychiatry and neuroscience. I am looking for ones with disruptive ideas, ones not that might not be funded by traditional sources. It's almost like venture capital for these young researchers. Mary Lasker used to have a wonderful phrase when we'd visit labs. What is missing and what is needed? And I think fairly consistently, I think about more funding for the next generation. There's a serious lack of physicians, scientists in mental health. And the ones you meet have an energy and a zeal and startup funding is what I'm doing. So you have this scientific selection committee Tell us about the process. So you have people, you've, you have these incredible applicants who are doing, their, as you said, they're in their labs, they're working tirelessly, very thoughtfully, very enthusiastically about what they're doing. And then they apply for this and you have, I think you were explaining to me, two kind of rounds or a, a first one and then, and then a second yeah, one. Two what would you rounds walk me of through peer that? review. And the first one takes place and is organized by the National Institute of Mental Health at NIH. And they make somewhere somewhere between 20 and 30 awards. And these are thoroughly peer-reviewed, and there's a nomination form that is very comprehensive. And then they're asked to rate them. And the top eight go to my initiatives, Scientific Selection Committee. Because of so many things happening in this 
wonderful life that has been given to me, I was able to reach out and I have a selection committee of great leaders from major scientific institutions, clinical practice, industry, who will recommend rigorous and outstanding scientists for this award and narrow it down. The first year we gave three awards and uh, the second time we gave four. Are there certain certain scientists, I'm sure you're excited about all of your awardees, but are there ones in particular whose work you're... The awardees? Yeah, that you're excited. Well, it's difficult to keep up with all of them, uh. <laughs> but there are people uh, that have already shown an impact. Um, I'm going to begin with one that was an unexpected nomination. It's a man called David Ross, MD, PhD, and he is in charge of the National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiative at the, he was for years at Yale, and then he recently went to the University of Alberta. He has worked to transform the medical educational model, creating tools to help psychiatrists and other mental health professionals integrate cutting-edge neuroscience into clinical practice. And ultimately provide better care to patients. There is a very creative, disciplined scientist who, when he won the award, was at UC San Francisco. And he gave Wednesday Grand Rounds at NIH, and they recruited him. And he is now at the National Institute for Mental Health. And he is in charge of looking at the immune system. I'm making aside that there are new areas of thought, and that's what we want. We want new thinking. And he has improved existing you might call them immune profiling technology, and used it to identify novel autoantibodies associated with schizophrenia and determine precisely where these antibodies bind to proteins in the brain. That description comes from eight or nine months ago. But he's gone on so much further. And what, what, is this, what is this scientist's name? Christopher Bartley. And I remember hearing of a cross-country drive in a station wagon 
with three daughters from San Francisco to Bethesda. And his wife, I think it was a month later, delivered their first son. Wow. <laughs> and he sometimes is getting it all right. <laughs> His wife is a writer and once reviewed a speech I had to give and helped with some corrections, editing. So that so you have personal relationships then too with so many of these? Yes. Yeah. I think that's important. Um, there was someone else that you had mentioned to me. Um, is it Jonathan, Jonathan Power? Yes. Jonathan Powers, MD, PhD, is nearby at the Weill Cornell Medical College. And he is in the process of creating precision functional brain mapping that informs circuits guides transcranial magnetic stimulation to mod modulate human behavior. I mean, we are looking for other things to do besides drugs. And uh, we're looking with new thinking on the immune system and on the subject of inflammation. There are new tools to do it with, and this is implementation. So he's able to tell, with different scans, he can stimulate different parts different of the brain? Re different regions of the brain. And uh, the whole field of brain stimulation is interesting. Some of it is invasive, and some of it is exterior and uh, it has helped some patients significantly and uh, it needs a great deal of refining teams of workers well that whole you know the you mentioned the, the immune system and inflammation that connection between the brain and the gut I think is something that's getting a lot more a lot more attention attention yeah um, oh microbiome and, I, and we you know there's a lot of talk about it I mean I'm drinking my my kombucha and I, I'm but I'm not quite you know I'm not I'm hoping that it's and and being aware of probiotics and you know trying to incorporate sauerkraut wherever <laughs> wherever it can find a home but I best but on I, a hot dog right exactly <laughs> exactly that's we need to do that for lunch soon. Dita, I'll bring the, the hot dogs and the sauerkraut. But I, the idea that there's a tangible connection, not just for your physical health, but also your your and mental health, um, I did not realize with, with the, the microbiome. You know, people labor a long time for accuracy in their data. Right. I also... I'm always mentioning politely that I do hope you will report negative data. Right. And share that 
so other people won't waste their time or funding. And I, I see with, well, particularly Christopher, I, I can call him and ask an opinion on something I have read. Um, an example is biomarkers for depression. Right. And this field has been studied for a long time, but they're new tools. And you heard the statistics. Right. There's a great deal to do. Well, how are you? You mentioned that you hope that they report the negative data. Are you asking, we talked about collaboration earlier, your researchers, and I guess it's, as you said, it takes years and it's ongoing, but are they, is that information going back to the NIH? How are they, or are they? It becomes known. There used to be large, and there still are, large major meetings that take more than a year or two to organize. And they're smaller meetings. And now with Zoom calls, it's many had, many of, many things are, uh, are being discussed by Zoom now. Right. So that I f- feel there is greater communication and sometimes it results in collaboration but um, I think people have a distinct awareness of the urgency yeah well I think it's because and we mentioned this with HIV research and investment in that research um kind of took off it's because it, you we use the word pandemic i mean it was something that impacted yeah. everyone and mental health is something that is has impacted i i think every american has felt the impact um of it meaning in ways we're not addressing it and the fact that it is it is urgent and it is a a crisis in in the united states for sure so in 2022, you published your beautiful book, <laughs> Dita Blair, Food, Flowers, and Fantasy. And pro- proceeds from that book are going towards this My research program. initiative. And the book is not only beautiful to look at, but it's filled with incredible and wonderful stories and the most delicious recipes. I gave all my best recipes except one. Oh, I will... Are you going to tell us that on air? Are you going to give no. that to me afterwards? We'll talk about well, not the recipe. I, I'm not a good. I'm not a good cook, Dita, like you. But you can. I want to know what it is. What secret? Lacquer duck. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I love that. That's maybe that's something you can put on a piece of paper in a sealed box. And I'd know, like to sell, sell it. <laughs> I was going to. Maybe that should be an auction item or something at the next time you do something for a fundraiser. Um, but, you know, for our listeners, you know, this is a, a book that, you know, you have, uh, that is filled with all of these recipes and menus and stories from you as a hostess in, in Washington and here in New York. And it's the 
the wife of the ambassador to to Denmark during the Kennedy administration, right, in the Philippines during the Johnson administration. And we could talk on and on, uh, you know, ab- about that book. And um, I do want to ask you what, what your favorite, if you have a favorite recipe from that book or a favorite menu, but you, you dedicate the book to your um, son and your husband. And I never had the privilege of meeting your son, William, but I did um, have the privilege and was lucky enough to get to know Ambassador Blair. And I, I truly think he was the finest gentleman I've ever met. And what a lovely, incredible man. And I, I want to hear how, you know, how you two met. I want to get a little bit into that because it's such a it's just such an exciting and historic story based on what, what, what he was doing at the time and, and what you were doing at the time. I met Bill at a dinner at Eunice Shriver's. Now, were you and Eunice neighbor, neighbors we were neighbors, first? We were okay. neighbors in Chicago. And she knew she had to give dinners for 18 people or more. Uh, and I think she really wished frequently that she were doing something else. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was, it was a dinner where people were going to a nightclub afterwards to hear Sammy Davis, (laughs) and that could not possibly be of less interest to me. And uh, I looked down at the table, and there was Bill, and I think he had the same I don't know, I just felt he had the same reaction. And so we had a wonderful conversation on the sidewalk, not joining cars that were going off to the nightclub. And it began, you might say it was the beginning of a rather long courtship, four years of we saw each other when we were in the same city. That kind of thing. Oh, because was he? He was not living in Chicago at the time. You know, he lived in Chicago. Okay, but he was always traveling with Adlai Stevenson. Oh, okay. In the uh, within the Stevenson campaign and, and uh, election strategy, they did worldwide trips in between meeting world leaders, and Bill organized those. And so, but he touched down and would go to the movies usually with Eunice. And then she would leave us to have dinner at one of two favorite restaurants. And he had an extraordinary low-key sense of humor that simply is beyond. It's legend. It was legendary, thoughtful. And we were married for 53 years. They were extraordinary. Yeah. Well, he was such a wonderful man, and I just think what a, what a spectacular and wonderful life you led together and impact that you, that you both made. And I, um, how exciting. So when, you, when he was, was your wedding in Denmark? Was, is that right? Our wedding was in Denmark, and it was quite convenient for about 90 American friends. <laughs> it was a very glamorous re- wedding in Fredericksburg Castle, and 
we both loved ballet, and it was lovely uh, ballerina in, from Chicago, Maria Tallchief. And so she was invited, and then she rang up and said, would you mind if I bought, brought Barishnikov? Oh, stop <laughs> it. How old and was he? Very young. Yeah. He had just escaped, so to speak. Oh, my gosh. Because he, he went to Denmark for, um, they had a great Russian teacher. And Nureyev. Wow. Oh my God. So, and one night, Mary Lasker, we, we had tickets for about 40 people for the ballet, the early comers to the wedding, and she gave a supper afterwards. And once again, we were mingling everyone, the, the Danish prime minister with a dancers. It was, oh, my gosh. Uh, Bill was always extraordinary about the division of labor, shall we say. Yeah. Um, I was responsible for food and flowers. And he did all of the inviting guest lists. In America, it was telephone calls, which he enjoyed enormously, and I don't. <laughs> and so, and then followed up by a poor memoir. But um, everything worked. Oh, and he, who did the seating? Was that Bill? Oh, Bill did yeah, the seating. Yeah, absolutely. I could request who I wanted. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I love that. I love that. And so then, so was it his work with Adelaide Stevenson that brought you to Washington, or was it the no, no, Shrivers it, when it was, um, Kennedy was elected? This, that's no, why no, no, it was first Denmark for three okay. and a half years, and then the Philippines. Okay, and then you moved back to Washington. And right, then we, this, uh, the embassy years were over, and neither one of us absolutely adored Chicago. And Bill was offered by Bobby Kennedy to be the first general director of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Oh, wow. Uh, Roger Stevens was to be the director. And uh, Bill was, they, they had a great association. And so that was a reason for going to live in Washington, where we were for, I think it was 27 years. So that's, and the first three years were getting the household yes. together, functioning, and we arrived with some French chairs and a little bit of a porcelain collection. Not a carpet, not a curtain, not a, nothing. So it, it did take about two years to do that. And then liberation and the weekly trek to Bethesda and to NIH began. And your incredible dinner parties in the, in yeah. the basement. Yeah. You were, <laughs> but they, they work because they, you know. So they had the space there and you were, you were I made it spectacular, I know. Um, oh, that is so, so, so tell me, you, we talked about Eunice as an inspiration and, and Mary Lasker, Jane Reitzman, was she also in that group of, I think there've been many people yeah. that inspired me in life and 
Jane was, like Mary, unique. It was great intelligence. It was charm. And it was a quest for knowledge. And yes, she's known for the beautiful Reitzman rooms that they met. But Jane did so much more than that. Um, they, Jane and Charlie had an apartment in London, for example. And Jane adored the music scene in London and supported the symphony and all different kinds of things. She loved sightseeing and she formed close friendships. And um, we saw each other regularly. I seldom came to New York without going for dinner or something. And we went on wonderful travels together. We did five summers in Germany. And very few people go to Germany early in August when the Germans are away, I guess on beaches or mountain resorts. So the extraordinary museums and now there's Museum Island um, outside of Berlin. But Potsdam, where you have the Chinese Pavilion, where you have Sanssouci, where you have all of these great treasures, libraries, they're the most wonderful libraries, etc. Jane loved literature. So did I. But I don't think she ever threw in the spy novels I read. But <laughs> anyway. So you you two, you would go to Germany in August, and you would go to museums and... Non-stop. Libraries. And we had a wonderful man who traveled with us who was very amusing. And you'd look at a great work by Schenkel, and he'd have a story to tell, or you'd... Um, you'd look at a portrait and there would be all the knowledge of whose mistress she was, etc., etc. But at the same time, you know, he was an art historian and well-versed in more serious questions, but he did keep it light. And he also studied the restaurant scene avidly. We didn't like it to be too formal. Several people would join us from time to time on these tours. I think Hubert Givenchy and Philippe came twice, and Mars of Hess, and a variety. Also, we never took the Autobahn to speed destinations, <laughs> because the, the roadsides and highways, the regular roads, were empty. And the most beautiful trees arched over them. The drives were a pleasure. That's so special. That's such an interesting, you know, as you said, people are at the beach and people are in the mountains, but what an opportunity to go and 
see the art and learn and learn and learn. So tell me, you have such a unique and timeless style. I sort of feel like you have that or you don't have that. I don't <laughs> have that. You do have that. That's how do you, how, how do you, disagree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how do you, do you think that's something that's cultivated? Do you, I think it has to do a lot with how you want to live your life. But I think it also is very dependent on curiosity and imagination. And I think you hope for distinction. You like a bit of imagination and you like it to be practical and wearable for a long time. If you're talking about clothes, yeah. if you're talking about a house, you certainly don't want to make changes over and over again. I think we're living in a strange moment where rather bizarre <laughs> things are being shown to us in photographs and magazines. Uh, and social media. And social media. I, I don't have time to watch very much of it. I will turn on Instagram if I'm sleepless. And it's changed since when I first heard about it. Used to be people and what they were doing or what they liked or what have you. Now I understand that there's all kinds of revolting things on it. <laughs> no, you're. I'm only laughing because I, I just got on Instagram for this podcast. I have I, I was <laughs> I a friend helped me set up my account. I don't know when it first came out, and then I forgot the password, and I I switched phones and. So I, I just got on and I, it's like a whole world that I've not, um, didn't know was happening. And it's, and it's mostly ads now or quotes or it's not as many I, of the there, photographs. There's one whole thing. I, I think something's wrong with my iPad. There's a phrase called rebooting. I think it yeah. hasn't been, and that, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I got advertisements for makeup artists yeah, and people selling wigs and hair and, you know, the miracle cream. And there's another whole layer of really the unseeable. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, it's interesting. I, um, I don't know how they, it's obviously there's, there must be certain things I'm hitting on. So my algorithm is giving me, Similar things, you know. I'm getting the the infrared red light mask for wrinkles. I must know I'm turning fifty this week, and I've got this <laughs> week. Yes, I know. So I, maybe it's I don't know how it's tracking me, but I'm getting. Um, uh, but speaking of photographs, as I was doing reading, and um, it's always fun to learn more about your friends than you than you knew before. I came across the photographs that Andy Warhol took of you, and I want to know how it came about, and I can see by your face. <laughs> you know, we can... It um, was an episode. Uh, someone, a friend, thought it would be amusing to take me to the factory for lunch. Uh, 
and Mr. Warhol sort of moved around the room, and I, I didn't really realize he had an Instamatic camera. Oh. And he was photographing everyone. He took a snap of me, and he gave it to me. But he apparently took a lot more. And when I was doing the book, which was totally a reaction to COVID. I was watching MSNBC, CNN, what have you. But you can always do com the commercial breaks and keep doing something visual, an art book right, in right. your lap. And I was, I sort of, began collecting pictures for my scrapbook well, you shows. have these incredible scrapbooks and i know because you've shown them the man who does the i believe that he did our our wedding album the um, paul vogel yes yes yeah. um and i love how you you well chronicle. there are 22 of them and there's not a single picture of me or anyone they're, they're all things i think are beautiful extraordinary interesting I mean uh, they're, they're photographs of libraries photographs of all of Tony Snowden's marvelous pictures of wild Arabian horses and swans there's uh, Every museum in the in the world pictures from that. And is that yeah. where you also kept your 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 recipes? No, you have your no no no. no, no. That's no, separate. That, that's another whole yeah group of scrapbooks. And there are scrapbooks. There used to be, I think it was fifty two volumes that Bill kept from the time he was three. And I finished them after his death. And those were extraordinary. They covered the whole bottom of the library. But those went to the Chicago History Museum. Oh, I was going to ask you what you... And we made uh, another group, which I do put things in, um, called The Highlights. And there are, I think, eight of those. But... These books, as you see, are quite large and heavy. And um, I chose to have Paul Vogel do them because he did work in vellum, parchment. And we went to Venice, I think, 45 summers the last week in August and the first week in September, and they were usually the same people. And uh, I would visit the stores that bound books and created those wonderful Italian papers, and so that's all incorporated in there. That it, so did, is it, did you bring that to Paul Vogel? Because that's what he, in the inside, we, our guest book, our wedding albums, he, that's what he used was Venetian paper on the, on the inside cover. I have to. Sh I'll, I'll take a picture for you and take send it to you. Take a picture. I'd love to see it, and I'll show you. Yes. Um, no, I remember you showed them to me once, and I. But I yes, I want to see some after too, um, because it's such a. 
you know, it, it takes time to do that, but it's, it's so worthwhile, right? Having so many people, friends of friends of friends have heard about them and maybe they do it themselves or they're no one is no one is doing that like you Dita no one no (laughs) one no (laughs) and uh, they want to see them and I might show them one or two favorites and then get back to work and leave them in the library (laughs) and they usually stay three or four hours (laughs) You you can you can um yeah, I do remember coming one day and having an iced tea. And I don't know if John was with me. One of my children was with me. We looked through a few. Um, I loved your children. Oh, they're so big, Dita. They're so big. Emmeline is 18. John is 14. Believe. And John is six foot two. And Lachlan is 12. And he was a baby when we moved, um, if you recall. But um, Johnny, Johnny, I think he was the one that was making. I was when furious you, when you. Yeah, moved. <laughs> I know. I know. We have to. Gosh, it was so sweet seeing the doorman and having them say "Welcome home." Um, it does feel like home. I love this building so much, and because of the people and friends that we made in it. Um, but you were a wonderful voice of reason at difficult times, oh. and. Let's say you're really one of the stars in the oh, building. Yeah, you're very sweet. Um, that's coming from the the ultimate the ultimate sun over here and star. So, the podcast, believe it or not, I have a young woman who's helping me with it. Thank gosh, because I can't. You know, as we talked about Instagram, I can barely <laughs> know what's happening. And it's Jess, our nice sound ladies here, who helps me with the tech stuff here, but. Um, apparently there's a lot of young women who listen to this podcast. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what kind of advice you have for young women as they're starting their careers. Um, and then as they're sort of starting their family, because you had such an incredibly successful family as you did at such a diverse and fascinating career. So, Maybe we'll start with career advice. I'm going to say something quite crass, (laughs) but I find it frequently doesn't exist. I think they should first learn to manage their own financial affairs. Mm. From the time they first get an allowance, there should be an idea of where they are, budget. I think they should have in their minds to always try to be helpful. I have a a phrase that I have in mind. Bill didn't like it. And it is Study as if you're going to live forever and live as if you're going to die tomorrow. And career advice would be very difficult for me. My professional career, which I 
spoke of earlier, was unexpected. I had done all those same things before. I visited Genentech, one of the first great biotech companies, when there were eight small fermenters. I went back the next year and there were 20 huge ones. Wow. I was exposed to so much that um, but it it was a great privilege. Not always does a young woman have that. But if she has curiosity and some discipline. I had quite a lot of discipline. I had 12 years in a Sacred Heart convent. <laughs> where my mother's sister was a nun, and it was a cloistered convent. And um, I think everything in life is a reaction. We had the world's most hideous uniforms. And when that was no longer part of my life, uh, I really embraced the idea of interesting clothes and <laughs> quite good clothes that would last and you could wear them. I, so we have to thank the nuns for how your incredible, yes. <laughs> incredible style. And external appearance, appearances are important. I remember When I first met Mary Lasker, there had been a huge dinner at the plaza for JFK. Bill was there, and he said, I'm going tomorrow night to have dinner with Mary, going to a dinner at Mary Lasker's, and are you free if I asked if I could bring you? I said, well, I'm, I was going to the theater, but I could be free. Yeah. And uh, years later, I thought about it. I was seated next to one brilliant scientist and one legendary businessman in finance. And I thought about it a lot afterwards because her dining room, I think, had seven Matisses on the wall. And I was just, uh, you know, just overwhelmed. And probably some years later, when I got to know Mary, I said, how do you talk to someone in a world that's not your world? And she said, ask them questions. questions. Ask them about their early life. That was exactly the right thing to tell me because you have astonishing conversations. But of course, people are growing up in a different way now. 
I think, a more competitive way. And I don't know that my life would provide any life lessons. <laughs> well, I think it does, Dita. Um, and I think you, you, you touched on it when you said um, being helpful. At the beginning, you said, you know, I would tell them to be helpful because being engaged, being committed, being interested, and then following through and helping was how you started right? It was your interest in yeah. what uh, the Laskers were doing, what Eunice Shriver was doing, what the NIH was doing, and then your commitment to that and your dedication to learning what was happening and your natural talent to be curious and bring people together and try to help um, is what led to... Led to many yeah. things. And um, asking questions, so great, because then that's how you're learning, right? Um, the Lasker Foundation... Um, had a reputation of significance. And we had many requests for help with patients. And because I was there at NIH so regularly, there were wonderful friendships. And I had a world of advisors that I could call, I've got this case of esophageal cancer, or I have this or that. I remember interesting case, uh, a man at the French embassy and the wife of the ambassador was a friend of mine and she called, would you please speak to him? And I heard his story and I said, well, I'd like to discuss this with the National Institutes of Health, with the National Cancer Institute, and I'll get back to you. And I'd have long talks. Uh, I never gave any direct, you should do this or see so-and-so. I would uh, ask for the case history, send it out to whichever advisor I was talking to at the time. Then we'd have another conversation and he'd recommend four or five doctors at different institutions. Some people believe in going to an institution. They were telling me specific People. people, right? And it was only a name. It was not what to do. But I think it was helpful. <laughs> well, how wonderful that you were able to to do that. I'm sure With by the you help have it. of yeah, friends. but but you having that again, you, you were being helpful. You know, you were trying. You made a, I bet a huge impact. Probably saved this person's life. There were a few of those. Yeah. As it happened, this charming Frenchman called the wife of the ambassador and said, should I send Mrs. Blair red roses? Mm. She knew me very she well. She said she does not. Only white flowers. She, <laughs> she does not like red roses. And 
she said, I'll get back to you. And she called me up. And he said, I said, well, if you just send me a few flats of vinca, <laughs> I'm planting ground cover. And a truck arrived with Stop 20 it. flats of vinca. And I went out and planted all of it. I loved gardening. All of it myself. And it was a few days after Sidney Farber of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, who also stayed with us from time to time, died of cancer. So it was sort of a oh. memorial effort yes. oh. for me. But things like that happened. So I think when you do try to be helpful, you learn from it. Well, your latest initiative focused on mental health. You know, as we talked about, all of us have been touched by it. And I am sure there are people who are listening who would love to know how they can learn more, get involved. If people wanted to, wanted to learn more about the Dita Blair Research in- Initiative or wanted to support it, where where would they go or how how would they be able to do that in this world of websites <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure the website obviously i, I didn't think it's probably a- um, i very seldom use a word a website i can't find my way around um, but since we're talking of mental illness, as you know, there are many institutes at NIH. There is the National Institute for Mental Health. There is a foundation for NIH where my effort is being administered. And they have a terrific website. You learn that they're very carefully curated and changed when necessary. It's become a way for the world to communicate. That's maybe not where I am, but to find out how to give support to my project, you would call a person called Susan L. Schillenglau at 301-402-6027. I am very grateful for small gifts as well as large, obviously. Oh, her email is sschillenglau at fnih.org. I'm going to have to put that on then. Because Schillen... I'll, I'll give yes. you the information. <laughs> yes, it says how to do it. It's not Smith. With a credit it's not card Smith. Or, I'm just teasing that her... You know, <laughs> <laughs> we have to... Sure, we get the spelling right. It's been such a joy um, and honor to have the opportunity to sit with you this morning. I, um, it's so wonderful to see you, wonderful to be here, 
And I'm just so grateful for you sharing all of your work with our audience because it's a part of Dita Blair that I don't know if everyone knows about and it's um, it has such an incredible legacy. Leslie, it is the greatest pleasure to talk to you. There's nothing I hate more than talking about myself. <laughs> but it's there's a lot of old times brought into it. There's something about being able to speak your mind. And in closing, I would like to say, at this time, we are going through a global public health crisis. There are so many exciting things to do in research, and it is of profound importance to act right now. Thank you, Dita. Well, you've inspired me to do that, and I know you've inspired our listeners, too. I've had very generous friends helping. Thank you. And these awards will go on after my death. It's so important. It's so important, and I can't wait to see. Just knowing the things, the research and the diseases that you've had an impact on and where they are today um, I know we're going to make a huge impact and our country will and mental health. No, seriously, from, from the work that you've done and um, through this initiative. So thank you. Thank you, Dita. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of this episode of the interview. A huge thank you again to Dita Blair for joining us. And as always, thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. Until then, this is Leslie, and don't forget to join the interview.